0: Who here believes that they work for an analytically mature organization? Wow. And who of the two yeah everybody from Exigen should have raised their hand. Um, (laughs) um, Who is of those of you who didn't raise your hand or maybe if you did, who is comfortable with the concept of analytical maturity? Within an organization, do you know what that means? Do you feel like you know where that, where those thresholds are? Okay, so I think this will be a, uh, you know, a good presentation for you. The basics. I'm going to cover three minutes of the basics. Uh, this is the typically the way I talk about analytics for lawyers. Letters make in words. In French,
1: presumably. Yeah, in, in French. French. <laughs>
0: Letters make words. Words come together to make sentences. Sentences form paragraphs to convey an idea. Analytics is the same general concept. It's about understanding the interrelatedness of different things and how they come together and how they react and interact to tell a story. So that you can then take those insights and you can describe what's happened. You can prescribe behaviors going forward based on what's worked before and you can predict the outcomes of changes that you're making within your operating model or anything else. Um, easy, right? So there are three prerequisites for an analytics program that you need. You need to have questions, you need data, and you need talent. And we're going to kind of be focusing on you know, these three things as we work through... Um, some uh, aspects or challenges to integrating a a robust analytics program within an organization. Um, So gentlemen, one of the number one uh, complaints, or or, uh, not even complaint, uh, statements that I hear when we talk about analytics, and I'm sure that most of you who didn't raise their hand um, with regard to analytic maturity, uh, it's that you don't work for a data-rich organization, right? Um, we're not a data-rich organization, or we're too small. We don't have enough data to make to draw any conclusions. Um, so, you know, let's start with David. You know, David, what do you, uh, what would you say to, to somebody who comes to you with that that statement or that feedback?
1: I would say that's a, as Boris Johnson would say, that's an inverted pyramid of piffle. Um, So, so actually, every organisation is data-rich. It may just not be in the right kind of format. So, people will say to me, quite often, uh, well, we only want to extract about 10 10 pieces of information from a contract. I can tell you on an office lease, to make it work, you're talking about 160 times by as as many offices as you've got. Think about that in a procurement agreement, and then you add it to other aspects of data. You do. It's just a question of takes res- i think the big problem is who takes responsibility for it and and at present there isn't really an owner of data in most companies i think that's the biggest barrier dan what do you
2: yeah i think that i think that's right i mean my my experience is always to um to begin with a client engagement where the client is trying to address some kind of problem and and in that context if we're going to be working with analytics and you hear the client say as as i have heard more than once you know we don't have any data Um, In addition to David's comment I would say data comes in many forms and uh, part of it is broadening the horizons in the mind of the client to understand that they in fact do have data they just didn't think of it that way and and a perfect example are commercial contracts where you know clients have large repositories of commercial contracts those transaction documents are rife with information if you put the comment to the client you know it, it, doesn't that constitute data they're not thinking in those terms and so there's there is a question of broadening horizons i think initially on the part of clients as they begin to realize in fact they're awash in the stuff they just hadn't been thinking in those terms yeah i think it'd be, worth, be interesting to get
1: marat's input because we um at exigent are doing a project with, with Dan and Murat School of Business to look at different kinds of data. So Murat had never actually dealt with anybody from the legal space at all. And he's, you know, he, he's, he's still not grey, but he's, he's working on it. So Murat, what's, what's, your kind of, what's your experience been like? Good, I think.
3: Yeah. Certainly. Excellent. Excellent. In my experience, I think one of the things that companies are now trying to understand is the the, the concept of CTO, CIO, like those are well-established positions, but a lot of organizations don't have this concept of data, they don't have like their chief data officers, so they are not treating data as their assets. Uh, you, You talked about that in your presentation, but your data is your asset. And if you start thinking about it, how you're going to make money out of it, you don't necessarily need to sell it, but how you're going to make money out of your data, then all of a sudden you're going to figure out that you are data rich very shortly.
1: Uh, I, there's, there's actually a really relevant point here because one of our competitors called uh, iCertis. They're not very good, but they anyway, they're a, they're a contract management company, which means they, they, they accumulate contract data much as we do. For the first time ever, they raised money. And one of the valuation metrics was not profit or sales, but the amount of data they held. And they raised this half a billion dollars on the back of, bugger, sorry, not very much revenue, but an awful lot of data. And and I think we're going to see in the future valuation metrics of companies uh, taking into account how they utilize data. As as Murat was saying, it's becoming a, a recognized valuable asset in its own right, but there's no home for it which is where legal can win, I think.
4: No, I just want to um, ask what your opinion is about um, having, you mentioned the chief data officer now and sort of uh, having that person taking responsibility and having central data governance and data analytics sort of team or having data stewards across the organization or a combination of both. So. What, what do you think is the best approach in sort of a legal environment?
1: I, I think it's not – I think what we're trying to say is you take it outside the legal environment. So many, um, so many of the legal departments I come across have a data officer to stop you using it, mm-hmm. right? So it's preventative. It's not seeing the opportunity in it because they don't actually have the sort of skills that, say, maratha has got in being able to mash all of this data to solve business problems. And say so the narrowness of thought is the biggest challenge in, from a legal perspective. Sure, you can protect people's data. Well, that's fascinating, but the company doesn't progress because of that. It just does, it
2: isn't held back, and, and that's the big opportunity. Yeah, I'm just to this point. Not so not only is it safeguarded, but um, demonstrably we know as lawyers that uh, data has value, and that data is you know in in one shape or form or other is located in commercial contracts, and we know that because we've never done an M&A deal without a substantial due diligence component focused on the commercial contracts of the target company. If it were not the case that there was not valuable information there, we would never embark in that
3: exercise. So, uh, back to you. You were asking whether you want to have a centralized uh, chief data officer versus uh, data stewards within the organization that work in multiple uh, functional groups right um, that depends on the organization I believe uh, in some cases it's you can use the chief data officers office as a shared resource that will feed into multiple uh, groups um, I think that's a safer bet because then that per uh, group will have the knowledge of what you can do what you cannot do so that people like David cannot you know uh, go into things and then come up with innovative uh, things, but at the
1: uh, <laughs> this is a theme I'm getting this a lot.
3: <laughs> but at the same time, um, managing data is one thing, and then managing the infrastructure for the uh, that data, creating the data lakes. Y- you need to have a structure for that, but where you would find like data stewards or like localized data people would be if you were to have, for example, analytics people within each group that will be d- diving deeper into data and then working with the CDO office, especially in a legal environment that we are in uh, right now, that you might find that a little bit more uh, I relevant. I think that's
1: right. I, I think that's a really interesting point, because I think the data analysts are the guys that create the value.
3: Yeah. The data officers are the guys that stop you using it.
1: <laughs> right? So. But you need both. You need both. Yeah.
0: Right. Yeah, it's a balance of of uh, innovation and regulatory control, right? Exactly. And for a room full of lawyers, it's a very shifting regulatory environment, and so corporate data strategy definitely needs to to track with that. Um, you know, just talking There's about data lakes. Here. Yeah, just oh. talking about data lakes, real quick. Sorry. Um, you know, structuring this information and and turning it into something of tangible value is ultimately the goal. Uh, you know, with any analytics program. So.
5: Yeah, it's um, kind of a comment and a question, but one of the challenges, Nancy. my name's Nancy, um, one of the challenges that I've seen in organizations is not that the data doesn't exist, but it's housed in a number of different systems that aren't speaking to one another. So so my question is, how do you motivate an organization that has a number of financial priorities to have the corporate will uh, and, and the commitment to investing in the IT infrastructure to make sure that all of the systems are speaking to one another. And I look at it from the kind of the risk management perspective in a healthcare setting, in a senior living setting. So how do you pull all that data so that you can really do effective um, analytics to figure out how you can do early interventions? Do you, do you want to take that? Well, I sure. love
2: that. That is a great
3: question. Um, I was on the phone with one of the uh, biggest uh, Canadian payment processing companies in Canada yesterday. And um, they have a problem of revenue optimization and uh, pricing. I worked with them actually nine years ago. That's how I started uh, working with (laughs) analytics as well. And all of a sudden The reason that they were talking to me again is because their revenue margins are or gross margins are shrinking because of the innovation so as much as it should be a strategy that you want to integrate your data uh, points you want to have an overall strategy in very practical terms I think businesses move into analytics data management of data the minute that they start to feel some pain It's simplistic. It's not like a big strategic idea. But that's what I have been observing. Every time they start to feel pain, they start to lose customers, someone's beating them, they wake up to the reality, and then they're like, okay, now we got to do something. Hopefully, that is going to change. With the startups, with the bright ideas, that's a totally different story, because they come up with the idea, and then they start working on how we are going to make this idea happen. Incumbent companies are trying to, you know, protect themselves, and that is the competitive environment. And they see their competitive environment changing, and they are now playing catch-up.
1: Actually, there's a, it, I can put your mind at rest in many ways, because you, you don't need to get every system to talk to each other. This concept of a data lake is not expensive technology. We're talking tens or fift, you know, 10, 50, or 100,000 maximum. On the board here is a simple example of a data lake being used. It's actually using a Microsoft application in 365, and what it's saying to you is it took contract data from office space for a very large insurer here in Chicago, and it mashed that together, to use use the right term, with the HR database using a Microsoft application. And what it told you then was you had occupancy. The common business question, which the legal department have been asked, is are we managing our property effectively? And, and the answer to that is, well, we've got a lot of it, but how well occupied is it? And so this tells you that if you were to optimise this at 200 square foot per head, you would save 3.4 million pounds, dollars, I apologise. So, um, and so these are real, and the data lake concept is real, and it, you can buy it off the shelf. What you need is somebody to imagine how you can and how you can mix these different sources of data. Microsoft um, Power BI has over 150 APIs built with existing systems, HR accounting already. Like, as long as you've got somebody, I mean, this is what we do, part of what we do. As long as you've got somebody who can actually imagine how to put the, uh, put the information together, you can do it. And you can do it in weeks. So it's very, very possible. And the, you, own, you own the data lake. you know It's in your cloud, or it can be in an AWS or whatever. It, it, it's totally secure.
2: And, and just to that point, to scale the metaphor a little bit, your, your scenario was one where you have disparate systems that don't speak to one another. You need, there's a system integration question there. <clears throat> Let's scale this slightly differently, and I've certainly seen both. But the other scenario is the information is lodged in the heads of a bunch of different individuals and you know and and there are scenarios there too and maybe they're all in the same office in Toronto or maybe they're scattered across the country which makes the problem worse or maybe they're scattered globally which makes the problem even worse and so it's the same problem though that information sits someplace it's in in this example as we scale it up or down it's in the heads of various individuals and what you need to do is figure out a way to externalize it And then to David's point, to draw the data points from it, you know, in the the context of a unified lake. And honestly, start with the problem. How well used are our offices, right? It's a
1: perfectly (coughs) sensible question. And the answer before this was, I think, not how much could I save if we optimize it, right? And this is just mashing two databases together in a
2: matter of weeks. I I can't emphasize that point enough. I mean, as an external lawyer, I've been a partner at a number of different Bay Street firms over many, many years, longer than I wish to refer to I always get called in when there's a problem so my starting point is always a problem but what I've discovered is that's not uniformly the case and um, and what works in terms of driving innovation is the existence of a problem just as in a sense Murat was saying the existence of a problem where the cost to offset the problem is less than the benefits that you will accrue by doing it and I uh, And having said that, the one example that I had where we were brought in to do an analytics program, you know, was driven by by a desire on behalf of one of the Canadian chartered banks, because they knew another of the Canadian chartered banks had done work in analytics and they wanted to do some too, but they didn't have a problem. And so it was, and that project, yeah. And that problem, uh, that, that, that project didn't work particularly well. We were, we were, in a sense, trying to fix something for them that didn't exist, in their mind, at least, at that point. So uh, there's a question over here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to transfer... Okay? Um, so, honestly... So, so back back to the, back yeah. to the thought. The, you know, the existence of a problem, scoping that problem, understanding that problem, you know, pricing the problem, and figuring out, is there a solution for this? And what is the upside for fixing this? And the, if the upside is massive then, you know, then, then things start to fall into place and you get champions who fall in behind that.
1: Yeah, I mean, to give you an idea of pure numbers, that example there maybe cost $150,000 and over the next three years would generate $3.3 a year of additional savings. Like data's money, it's real money and it's a simple problem but it's solved by a better use of analytics rather than, well, I think Texas is pretty well occupied, but I don't know. Actually, funny enough, New York was they all crammed in like sardines. In Texas, they each had their own football field. Anyway, that's a different story. Well, there are, and that's Texas.
0: You know, to, to Dan's point, too, then there are also tangential knowledge management benefits, too, to, to integrating the key data points and getting, getting some of that information out of the heads of people um, who have stellar, stellar history of, of decision-making. Um, and getting the data behind that decision making to support it so that you can get more consistent application throughout your organization, right?
2: I know that there's a question here. I just wanna like touch on something. Um, I've actually worked on some transactions with some of the people here in the room. And, and one of the things that I don't wanna gloss over in the question that Nancy's just raised is the risk involved in undertaking corporate change. And, and this is Charles McCarriger over here in the corner, a longtime friend, somebody I've done some significant work with. And we were talking, so Charles works in the financial services sector, about how difficult change is in the FI sector. There's like zero tolerance for failure. Do you wanna just have like a a word on this?
6: Um, You'll get to hear me later too, so just I don't wanna, so early introductions I guess. Um, As Dan mentioned, I'm I'm at TD Bank. In, based out of Toronto, but with uh, representation in the U.S. For those of you who live on the East Coast, you'll definitely recognize the brand. So um, I have a uh, carriage of a number of different areas of the legal department, um, and Dan and I worked together a number of years ago to set up an innovative resourcing program, which we'll likely cover in this session later at one thirty. But what was really compelling about the f- first presentation that I really applied some thought to was the... The issue around um, supporting failure, and 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 the challenge that that can present in industries like ours, where we're highly regulated, where in fact there is absolutely zero tolerance, not only from an internal corporate perspective, but also from what our regulators expect of us. And so, so I don't think it's as black and white as that. I do think that you know there are things you can do to foster innovation that, in fact, could support failure. But as long as you have the right program in place to constrain the impact is one way to say it and also on top of that you ensure that you enable your teams who are creating this risk to be operating towards a common goal so it's the aspect of leadership developing that vision ensuring their work so they're not your team is not otherwise chasing the latest and greatest shiny thing but they're working towards an objective or a problem and so if you have those two elements in place you can in fact enable innovation some level of failure <laughs> within constraints, even in a highly regulated industry like the financial services space. So,
1: we got a, a comment from Brian over here.
2: Yeah, hi, I'm Brian. Um, I'm just curious if you guys have some examples of how law firms have been using or are starting to use analytics. Um, I would just be curious to know what are some good examples of how this is being implemented. So, I would say. Um, utilization of data analytics by law firms is very much still in its infancy and I guess my question maybe I need a clarification from you are you talking about the use internally by the partners and the associates of analytics so that it's influencing the decision making of those practitioners or are you talking about them designing platforms to bring to clients in their different scenarios, both both. <laughs> so I I would say um, m- so my my experience purely for what it's worth is is there is very little use still being made currently being made um, of analytics within law firms as part of decision making process, and. Um, Having uh, having, uh, been involved in this, say, over the past five to six years, there's not great understanding. So lawyers are lawyers for a reason. They're not investment bankers. They're not risk takers. They're guys who are driven by precedent. They're highly analytical type A's. And telling them to change their business model, if, you know, their hourly billings are strong, it's very difficult to do. And that's one of the big forces against change within that sector. Um, I, I don't know that I have like a blueprint that I can give to you in terms of when I would foresee law firms adopting this. I do believe it'll happen. And um, I would say there is, on the other side of the equation, the idea of them building systems and bringing it to clients. Um, I'm probably a walking example of having successfully done that now three times. But it's still in, you know, it's in its infancy. And there, there are real problems with it uh, in terms of law firm, like traditional performance metrics. Like this is not a, this is not a transaction. This is not a piece of commercial litigation. This is not tax advice. There are worries about whether this sort of work is in the nature of legal work or business consulting work. So there, there are some, there are many things that the law firms are wrestling with in this regard. I, I will say though, Dan, kind
1: of Dan's generally talking about, as the Canadians call it, Bay Street firms, which is like white shoe firms, I guess. But um, we call them Magic Circle because we're British and pompous. So, um, but actually, I can think of some examples in the personal injury space where people are looking at, and we've been doing a lot of work with this on mass torts, where you can predict likely outcomes. You can take medical analysis and you can predict the likely settlements, and, and that allows law firm to manage the cost. Now, it's still in its infancy, and law firms are not building it themselves. I don't think they've got the capability. But in, in tort and litigation, there is a massive... Because it's a probability game. If you're... The, the, the triage of a case... Is a, is a betting game, because most of them build on contingency. So you have to have a probability analysis, and that's happening for the, I'm flying to Denver tomorrow to do two presentations on that. But for the Bay Street firms, frankly, they're making too much too much cash, is, the, is my view, but.
3: Well, I don't know how much they make. I'm just a professor, but. Um, a little
1: bit more than professors, I'm guessing. But I don't know I'm sure you. of that.
3: <laughs> um, another thing that you're going to see in the future is applications of text analytics both in natural language processing and indexation so just think about indexation as type how Google works if you're searching for a word that's indexed in the computer and then you match the indexes and then it gives you the uh, results of your search that can be used in your litigation in your contracts Uh, then also uh, analyzing the text to understand the text itself and then when you ask a question so instead of spending hours and hours reading documentation you can start getting help of the computers or the AI in return you're going to be reducing the t- amount of time that you're spending it's going to become more viable and easier to apply because especially with the NLPs you would have to write your own code before yeah. now you can use APIs from IBM or Google to write, uh, use their existing uh, APIs to create your own systems.
1: I'll give you a practical example. We have a, a thing that we're about to launch called Nurse Scarlet. Um who may be a man, maybe a woman. Let's not be pejorative. And that we'll use that AI to scan thousands and thousands of pages of medical records, which will allow the lawyers to do the analysis. So there's real practical examples out there which are being launched. And Murat's completely right, as usual, which is kind of it's not expensive anymore. So this, this is gonna become ubiquitous.
2: So I, all, of, all of which I think is true. The, the flip side to this is human behavior and the difficulty in changing human behavior. And that cannot be underestimated. I think that goes to the earlier discussions around the importance of leadership Changing human behavior is how these deals fail or succeed. So maybe it's the, it's the analytics that's simple and the people that are complicated. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean it, Actually on true. the Nurse Scarlet thing, like, you know, the perfect example would be a scenario where we've got a team of M&A lawyers working on a new deal. The counterparty legal counsel says, we want this clause in. Our guys say, that's not market. The other guys say, it absolutely is. And let's just pause there. This, like, this happens daily. Like The entirety of legal expertise is experiential. There is not a system in Bay Street, to my knowledge, where today a lawyer would say, well, let's just stop for a second and turn to and look at the analytics on the last 100 M&A deals we did to see the frequency with which this proposed clause has been used or not. That doesn't exist. Instead, what happens is you send a global, law f- a, a global email... Saying, you know, we're involved in such and such a transaction. The other side is saying this is normal. We're saying it's not. You know, call me if you have experience on this. That's how that's handled. We're miles away from from analytics on a point like that. And what's what's in the what's in the way? I'll come back to you, Charles. What's in the way is changing behavior. I'm, yep. I'm coming back to Charles.
0: While you're walking, one thing to add to that too. Uh, and Brian, in response to your your question we're seeing a lot of change on the law firm side being pushed by corporate legal counsel and so especially in the way that they're structuring their business and their and their fees Um, so this is an example of uh, an analysis of of panel counsel fees and uh, at quote accuracy it's all anonymized data but quote accuracy so that you can or so somebody in a corporate legal department has the information and the data that they need to make the right panel council selection. And then it's also at the foundation of activity-collared AFAs. So then you can say, over the hor- over the course of our matters based on structuring of billing data, we know that this task should take roughly this much time and therefore should cost this much money. Well, and it so be, it, it becomes a quantifying cost savings. It can be
1: more brutal than that. You can automate this to such an extent where it will say, you've quoted $1,000. But statistically, you go over budget 85% of the time. So we don't believe you. So we actually think the number will be X. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly, it sounds,
6: yeah.
0: Well, and and beyond that then, we're seeing that law firms are now more keen to start reporting on certain aspects of cost savings and and leveraging analytics uh, that are leveraging the data that their clients want to see about their performance and presenting it in a much more meaningful way. So,
6: yeah, so I would just, the law firms are not gonna change unless we force them to change. <laughs> and it's like a c- critical example of how we are driving change, at least for the Canadian market in the procurement space. And so I, one of my teams that I manage is the activity of buying goods and services for the bank. And so one of the exercises that we've done to, uh, lead to a number of things that are being discussed is we've actually gone through the exercise of looking at our contracts and breaking <coughs> them down to principles or standards, plain English. Why do we have this provision? Document those. I'll give away the punchline. There was roughly 400 standards, so much to the to comment around how do you work with a lease. Of those standards, you define for yourself what is the critical ones you want to measure, and then you measure, and you measure you enable measurement there in that way in a much easier way than otherwise relying on expertise. You have someone who has judgment and they can say, it may not be the exact words on the page as to what the precedent was or what I'm used to seeing, but can I hand on heart say I met the standard, the principle of why we ask what we ask? Capture that and you measure it, right? And so we've now been doing this for three years and we're building up, Helgi is working with me to build up um, reporting analytics. And so we now know that when you make that comment on my market or not, I can definitively say, as a matter of fact, (laughs) we do, we are successful in achieving this position 73% of the time, so.
3: May I make one comment? How many of you are lawyers here? Oh, my God. Okay. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) um, (laughs) One thing that I can tell for legal organizations, invest in data visualization. That's one thing that you might uh, do, because it does not require that much of statistical knowledge or machine learning. But once you start asking the right questions, I mean, all of these things are actually applications of uh, data visualization. Invest in your human resources who can use visualization. It's either Power BI or it's going to be Tableau. I mean, those are the two uh, market leaders. You would start seeing different results and you are going to have more aha moments and those will lead into more questions that you're going to be asking and that's going to foster innovation within self. Uh,
1: as a, actually, a brilliant point. You probably know the stat, but the, you absorb information through a picture something like three times faster than you do through the wor- through words. It's, it's an incredible difference in terms of speed and effectiveness of decision-making. And this is simply Microsoft. Like, the fact that it's been quite well put together and it's quite clever doesn't obscure the fact that that's much easier to understand in a glance than going through a document or several tables in Excel. So the speed of, of decision and effectiveness is massively enhanced by visualisation.
4: Yeah, just... Uh something that uh, a lot of lawyers have have said to me um, about the use of AI and sort of scanning through documents and extracting useful information is that there's still that lack of trust that it's almost as if the trust that they have in the technology is that they would have for a new young employee that walked in the door and they don't actually know what their experience is and what they would would be able to recognize in those documents. So to to work on that and to to develop the technology, do you think it's um, something that law law firms should consider in getting involved and partnering up with tech companies to actually help train that AI to be at a level where you would expect it and trusted to recognize the same information and relevant information in documents that a, a senior associate would
3: well i guess either law firms will work with those big tech companies or one of the big tech companies will buy a legal firm and then absorb them and then make them do that one way or the other it is evolving so fast like you were hitting like 50%, 70% accuracy. Now it's 85 to 90% accuracy. As it gets to 97% accuracy, then you're going to start trusting it. I mean, I myself, I don't have any Alexa, I don't have any Google Home or anything like that because I don't trust them. I don't want them to listen to me. <laughs> uh, that's just my uh, perf- uh, personal preference. But it's the same idea, right? Like you're going to be asking, hey, where's the next convenience store around my house to go buy a pack of uh, pills or whatever? That accuracy is the same thing. It's in in a very similar way. It's the same thing as that you're uh, using NLP to analyze your documents. That is going to increase.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's exactly right. In fact, at the back there is we should get Carl's comment on this. Um, Carl's... um, Dan, can you see yeah. Carl? Is I'm on Carl, the way. Um, Carl is our director of legal AI, and what makes his experience so relevant is Scarlett start, started out as a legal application before we turned it into Nurse Scarlet. So um, he has spent he spends his life talking to Scarlet. His wife doesn't like it much. <laughs> so he, he, he literally he trains Scarlett every day. I mean, that's as much as I know. I never see him. So, Carl, do you want to make a comment on that? Right, and, and also,
0: we have a whole panel on this later today. Yeah. So, we'll yeah, just... Yeah, so uh, just just briefly,
1: come. Uh, I'll keep my comments very briefly. Thank you. Uh, yeah, so I, I'm in training Scarlett pretty much every day. But uh, it's not just me, but uh, actually a team of, of, I would say, fairly junior lawyers who are actually being trained up on actually becoming better lawyers. I kind of refer to them as my Padawan. And they're soon becoming Jedis. And as they become Jedis, they're able to actually do submissions to Scarlett to teach Scarlett on how to extract the right information. They become hunters of data. And we train Scarlett to hunt that data and get the data there so it can be used effectively by companies. But remember, remember this. you know, You can run thousands and thousands of documents at the same time. So your QA becomes. More a function of getting you from the 85 to 100 percent much faster, and I don't think it's there to do the most complicated equity document in the world. Right? It's actually there for what is a good majority of legal documents, which are pretty mundane, and and that's the simple truth of it. And it doesn't get tired, and you can run thousands at the same time, rather consecuti- consecutively. So. You can, you can embrace it or ignore it, but it's, it's here. It's no question it's here to stay, and it's only going to get better. Like, it's, yeah, it's a real yeah. curve.
0: We have another question in the back.
7: Just some comments. I have a lot of thoughts on this as an insurance executive, cybersecurity um, and, and privacy attorney, uh, as well as teaching uh, cybersecurity and privacy law, and having been um, a leader in the insurance and financial services space. And so my thoughts are that, one, if you're not thinking about transforming your organization into a data organization or a data company, you should be. The insurance industry is doing that as we speak, or specifically some companies within the insurance uh, industry. Because as you know, uh, the insurance sector has has lots of information. And so the companies that are going to win moving forward, and we saw the statistics relative to the companies that no longer exist, are going to be the companies that will learn how to leverage that data to, sh- to what I say shock and awe their customers. And th- the best example of that that I know of currently you know, is Amazon, for example, where they anticipate our needs before we even know that we have a need. And so how do you use artificial intelligence and machine learning?
1: I think, as I said, on the mass talk side, we've got products already that are doing predictive analysis, right, for the law firms, and we're being approached by insurers. We actually have just done a deal with uh, the Schulich School of Business. Dan and Schulich, my good friends, uh, um, on the Schulich project. Maybe Dan or... I can can talk talk about it.
3: We are involved with two projects with uh, exigence and I I hope that this is the beginning of many projects. Uh, One of the projects that we are working with is um, the economic impact of wildfires and other natural disasters in certain areas. And our students are trying to predict what kind of materials, what is the economic impact that certain wildfires will cause into those areas so you can hedge... Uh, what you need ahead of time. Municipalities will be able to use that. Other uh, resource uh, organizations would be able to use that. Another uh, project that we are working on is uh, about the rental occupancy because you guys have a lot of contract data. And then the question is, especially in areas where uh, demographics are changing very quickly, how much you charge, right? Are you charging less or could you charge more how are you're going to keep your occupancy at an optimum level and what is the ongoing rate for that uh, our students are working on two projects and one thing is if you work with academia if you find the right academic partner you can innovate in a cheaper way because that is going to allow you to fail if it doesn't work still it's very uh, low cost investment and it will help you to learn and then get back to them and then with do more.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's been, it's, for us it's been a great experience. You know, maybe, maybe not so much for Marat, but, you know, again, mashing the idea, mashing together um, a sort of semi-legal data with the
2: business school.
1: Like, it's a really interesting kind of mashup, right? It's really quite a fascinating uh, opportunity for us.
2: I have had the experience um, of being a lecturer as part of the, the Master of Business Analytics course where I'm standing talking about legal issues, and in point of fact, a limitation of liability and how that works within a commercial contract, and in real time, Murat standing next to me and converting what I was saying into an equation, which the data scientist in the room like onboarded instantly. So this, this capacity that Murat has to have a foot in two different worlds, the data science world, the hardcore mathematical data science world, and the legal world is... Very profound. Um, I'm being Bill Clinton now, so uh, over to you.
7: Hi. um, So I just wanted to put a plug in for my